0: Greetings, friends, family, enemies, and strangers of all kinds. Welcome back to Extra Milestone, the show where we take a trip to the past to discover the classic films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today. I am your host, Sam Noland, and I am joined at long last by, I I dare say, one of my very closest friends in this world, my old... Uh, um, one of my oldest friends, uh, my uh, former collaborator on such podcasts as Now Conspiring and Part Time Characters, it is Maria Garcia. Welcome to the show, Maria.
1: I'm gonna cry. That was so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: I meant every word of it. Aww, yes, it's, thank you. It has taken me it has taken me far too long uh, uh, to invite you onto this onto this uh, this show that I do every single week. Extra milestone, but I'm glad I did. And for and uh, and and this is no small task because today we have two really really heavy hitters. Oh, yes. Like either one, either one of them could have sustained a whole uh, episode easily. Um, it, and uh, it's it's only because of the weird staggered schedule of the show that we have to lump them together. But I think it'll be fun.
1: I think so too. And you're right. It's gonna be it's gonna be a difficult one because there's just so much to say. <laughs> but it'll be yeah. great
0: as long as it takes so we will uh <laughs> until
1: five j- in the know. morning
0: listen I, I mean if it if that's how it has to be uh <laughs> to for, quote roz from monsters inc for, that's the way it has to be
1: for the love of cinema we will do it
0: <laughs> we will do it and so i what why don't we just get right into our uh our a feature which is uh a movie that uh, the two of us actually have a little bit of a history with so i'm excited to i'm excited to discuss that it is uh celebrating its 40 year anniversary uh this month which is november it is martin scorsese's kind of kind of magnum opus matter of fact he actually thought that it was going to be his last movie that's true uh and he, and he almost didn't do it so I'm excited to talk about sort of how it came about but enough dilly-dallying it is none other than Raging Bull
1: The Bronx Bull The Raging Bull Let's hear for the great Jake LaMotta
0: ladies and gentlemen
1: I'm the best I can take him on anybody
0: You're dead, you're married You the young girl's me.
1: There's no way I'm going down. I don't go down for nobody. Listen with him. Why does he have to make it so hard on himself? If you beat Trigger Ray, you'll get a shot at the title. You feel that way? There's no one else around who
0: wants to fight. Me. They're all afraid.
1: There's a lot of bad things, Joey.
0: Maybe it's coming back to me. Now, uh, now, Maria. Let's just let's just cut right to the chase. So, I want to I want to hear from your uh, perspective not only how you first saw Raging Bull, but also how you first sort of became aware of it and its legacy and things of that nature.
1: Ah, uh, okay. Well, <laughs> I think <laughs> it's not as difficult as I'm making it sound. Okay. I think the first time I heard about Raging Bull, someone in my family was watching either a documentary or something about Robert De Niro. And i the thing I remember was they were so... Um, in awe of his transformation because one of the things they talk a lot about Raging Bullets, you know, uh, Robert De Niro's transformation from like super fit boxer mm-hmm. to an overweight uh, middle-aged man and, you know, like his entire talent and skills in acting. Right. So I, I remember there was a scene on TV because it wasn't the movie. It was just like a clip they put in this documentary of him like past his prime in the movie and I couldn't even recognize him I was like oh my god who is this guy and I couldn't even believe it was really him and then they kind of did that back to back to him you know in the boxing scene so that's how I kind of vaguely became aware mm. of Raging Bull now the years pass, and I'm aware that you have to watch it's one of those things where it's like oh do you like Robert De Niro you have to watch Raging Bull it's mm. Raging Bull it's like one of his best um performances yeah like, okay, Oscar winning I'll get to it yeah. And so I'm like, yeah, I'll get to it. And then a person named Sam Nolan came into <laughs> my life. <laughs> and um, yeah, I had to watch it. And I think what happened was at the time, well, Sam spoke a lot about that movie and he he loved the movie and told me I had to watch it. I had to see it. And at the same time, I think I was already writing down a list of movies that I needed to watch, like, you know, movies to watch in a lifetime kind of thing. I was like, okay, Rachel Bull has to be in it. And I was doing this thing where I cut them up in like little pieces of paper. So randomly, I would just pick a movie a week and watch it. And one day, lo and behold, it was Raging Bull. Mm. And that's how I saw it. Mm. And then Sam didn't speak to me for like four weeks <laughs> after I saw it. That is not true.
0: <laughs> I can assure you that is not true. I will never forget. It was it, because you did this on uh, on your YouTube channel. On, on yes. On the, the Club channel. And... I was watching your review of it. And I, I'll never forget in the middle of you talking about it, it you sort of, uh, it sort of jump cutted away. And you said, I have a friend who will be so mad at me about this. And I was like, <laughs> is that me? Is that supposed to be yeah. me?
1: <laughs> I think I did it twice. Cause there were, Raging Bull was one of the movies that you just recommended it. It was like, you have to watch it. You will love it. Mm. And I think when people say that you watch a movie with that person in mind, yeah, and then you're like, "Oh my god, how am I going to speak to them again, or what am I going to say?" Mm-hmm. And then the other one was Psycho. You wanted I me to that. see Psycho so bad. Yeah, and I think I actually mentioned you by name when I finally picked Psycho. <laughs> I was like, "Are you happy? Are you happy now?"
0: Yeah, and then I remember on the podcast where we reviewed it, uh, you sort of you sort of uh, tricked <laughs> me a little bit. You said, "Sam, I'm sorry to say this." <laughs> But I loved Psycho and I was like elated because uh, he led me to believe that the worst had come to pass. Uh, And then and then uh, cut to a little while later and uh, and you see Raging Bull and you were not a fan of it. No, not the first time. And so is this only the second time that you've seen it or has there been any other times?
1: No, I've only seen it. I actually was not able to see it recently, but Mm. I I remember it quite vividly. Oh, okay. And um, I would like to see it again because I do think the way you feel about movies kind of depends where you are in life. You Mm. know what I mean? I've seen movies that I loved and then I see them again. I'm like, oh, they were not that amazing. And the other way around as well. So I would love to see it again to see what about it. Was it that I didn't like or bothered me so much? I don't even remember what I said in my review.
0: Uh, it, it, yeah, I'd be curious to uh, go back and see that. I've i found uh, that the same thing kind of takes place, and I remember specifically it was uh, the movie. Oh gosh, what was it? It was uh, the Darjeeling Limited, um, the Wes Anderson oh, movie from okay. two thousand seven. This is this. This might sound like a weird example, but I'm going somewhere with it. I promise. Go and. On. I was uh, I I had seen it one time in like 2013 or something just because it it was on or something like that. And uh, I wasn't that big of a fan of it. And then one of my friends in high school one of my very good friends. um, Oh, gosh, it's I sound like a moron for not being able to remember his name, Sean. That's there. I have a few friends who looked like this guy, so it was my friend Sean and I, uh, and he was a really big fan of it. And I was like, "Yeah, I just didn't really dig it, uh, but I, I, I would be curious to, uh, to see it again." And he asked, "Do you want to watch it with me and sort of get like get a little bit of an insight into you know from the side of someone who loves it?" And mm-hmm. we ended up doing that, and actually now it's one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies, very likely because only of that reason that i was able to witness it with someone who loved it so i would yeah. be curious uh, to 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 see if that would have an impact um just to sort of just to lay the groundwork on how i first discovered it it's not nothing nearly as uh storied as kind of your history with it but it was also one of those things where uh, very early in my days of getting into film uh i kept hearing about this movie i saw it on like all sorts of top 10 lists top 100 lists even Mm -hmm. of the greatest movies of all time and uh and of course it was nominated for a bunch of oscars it won a couple of them and uh and uh, i think one day i just sort of i just decided like why not today is the day and i got about 20 minutes into it and I just could not get into it, which might be, which might come as a bit of a surprise. <laughs> but something, and the exact same thing happened with Goodfellas, which I think I mentioned a few weeks ago mm-hmm. when we talked about that movie. For whatever reason, there's something about. That specific period where I was trying to get like watch a bunch of the classics that I hadn't seen and Scorsese, I just couldn't really get into it It was a little bit of a bugaboo on my radar, especially considering, you know, how acclaimed he was and how many, uh, how many people cited him as one of the great directors. And so, and I couldn't tell you exactly what happened, but it was about a year or so later, I want to say, I thought I'm going to give it another shot. And uh, I watched it and and really liked it a lot. I was able to get through the whole thing. And then with each subsequent viewing, I just grew more and more uh, attached to it. The same exact thing happened with Goodfellas yeah. where- just every time I see it, I notice something different. I experiencing it in a new way to the point where now I would I would call *Raging Bull* my favorite uh, Scorsese movie. Um, oh, which yeah, I know which is which might be saying a lot. And this is and and Scorsese is probably my second favorite director of all time. So that is mm-hmm. certainly saying a lot. Uh, I think uh, Taxi Driver and Goodfellas and The King of Comedy are right, you know, right after that. Yeah. Uh, You've and I always... There... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, there was an episode of Part-Time Characters where uh, Bridget Sardock and Donis Gonzalez and I talked about our top 10 movies of the 80s, and Raging Bull was my number one, and it still is. Uh, nice. I think it's one of my... Top five favorite movies ever. Uh, wow! So I know that I know that's that's a lot of praise. That's a lot yeah. of praise.
1: I mean, and well deserved. You're not obviously not alone in that opinion. Right. It's considered yeah. one of the best movies ever made.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but it, talking about how you felt about Scorsese's movies, I think in part is because I mean, for the reason that sometimes I maybe mean, you can't get into it or it takes a I don't know a second for you to understand it. I think a lot of his characters are quite unlikable mm-hmm. and he explores those characters very well which is something sort of signature about him like these men with these demons and these flaws and it's so very hard for you as a viewer because you kind of have to root for someone and Jake Lamada is just for me it was very difficult to root for him because he's so self-destructive Right. And continues to be. And that was problematic for me. Like, I can ad- admire the movie for many reasons. But in terms of the character and the story, I found him very unlikable. And that was mm-hmm. one of my biggest issues.
0: Yeah, it's... Th- th- this might sound... uh Like a strange response to that, but I totally agree with that, Mm. that there are, that there isn't much of a redemption. There's a lot of comeuppance to be had that never, that never comes up, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And I think that's kind of, I think it's kind of where uh where it might divide certain audiences where i think it's i think it would be hard to cite this movie as being like sort of an underdog story Mm -hmm. or of or of even having a heroic protagonist i can't remember exactly where it was i think it was i think it might even be uh on rotten tomatoes for every movie they have like that little critics consensus right at the top Mm -hmm. um i think and i'm gonna i'm gonna fact check that in a second but i'm pretty sure that says on that website uh that it's a story about an unsympathetic hero i'm like hero is not the word like (laughs) uh, unsympathetic yes and i think that's kind of the key to this movie is that is and it, it was something i was thinking about while i was watching it and uh it's something that i've always sort of pondered a little bit about this movie and i want to i'm curious to hear your uh, your thoughts on it but okay i was trying to think every time i watch this movie i get a very tragic sense from it and mm-hmm. with a lot of tragedies i think the reason they're effective is because we don't Want things to go wrong, and we and uh and maybe even that whoever is experiencing the tragedy doesn't deserve it. With this, I think Jake Lamotta clearly deserves everything he gets, if not more. I think he got off easy, if you're asking me. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to think though: does it technically count as a tragedy if 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 it uh if it comes about in a just way? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you have a thought on that? Well.
1: Um well I think as you said I think we view tragedies as things that we wish wouldn't happen to that person. Mm-hmm. We don't think they deserve them. We think it's like the world being cruel to them for no real reason except that you know things happen and it's random and and it was their turn for this to happen to them. Mm. But I also think one of the incredible things about tragedies whether it be you know in theaters or movies um or Shakespearean is that There's so many little moments where you feel like, oh, they could have turned it around right here. Mm. If he had just not done this thing or if he had just not gone on a crazy, jealous rage here, he would not have lost everything. Mm. And I think it's that sort of yearning of like, oh, my God, you could have just not done that or (laughs) you could have done this. But even as you watch it and even as you watch it again, you kind of hope he will, but he doesn't. You can't change it. And I think in that sense... It is a tragedy. Even though you're right, it's the consequences of his actions, but but you still feel bad for him because he I think it's because he's aware. He's aware yeah. that he is this way and he can't change it. He wants to, but he just can't. And that's tragic, you know? Being aware of your flaws and not being able to do something about them.
0: Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, there, there was a uh, there was a scene, or even just one little exchange of dialogue that really struck me this time around that I never really took uh, particular notice of before. But it's early in the movie, before we've even really seen like everything start to go downhill. Like, there's been a few mm-hmm. incidents, like with uh, with Jake's first wife and stuff, who is just th- that that poor woman. I hope she turned out okay. But uh, <laughs> there have been a couple of incidents, but it is after uh, one of the early fights early on. And I think it might be in 1943 or something. It's before the montage where it's, where it sort of jumps a few years ahead in time. Yeah. And Jake says to Joey, his brother, Joe Pesci uh, says, I got a lot of demons, Joe, maybe they're coming back. And so even before all of, you know, the, the really horrific stuff happens, uh, we do see that awareness and, for that reason, I think the the conclusion I kind of ended up coming to is that it is a it is a tragedy, but I think it's a different kind of tragedy, and that's and that's part of what makes it uh, what makes it so outstanding to me is that it is not a tragedy because of what happened to the character; it's just a tragedy because it happened. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like like mm-hmm. that this that it got to this, and that there was. Uh, past a certain point there was nothing that anyone could do about it and so it almost comes across as a bit of a cautionary tale but not even in a way of trying to educate trying to sort of you know like grab the listeners or the 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 viewers hand and say like okay we're going to show you a story of you know what not to do and how not to let (laughs) jealousy and rage uh overcome you it's just sort of it's almost subjecting you to it you know what i'm saying
1: yeah, I understand. But then, okay, are we, can we go into spoilers? Do we not talk about spoilers?
0: Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about the whole movie. I think, okay. uh, I think it, I think this warrants it.
1: Okay. Cause I think you're right. It is sort of like a cautionary tale. But then there's like these, oof, I don't know, like ambiguous moments in which I think he's, imi- I don't know how to explain it. Hmm. Like at the end of the movie, like we've seen him sort of lose everything to be very vague about it. But mm. that very last scene, I, I'm i not entirely sure what it's supposed to mean. It's like, did he learn his lesson? Did he not learn his lesson? Because I think he could be a hero if he learns his lesson. But did he?
0: You're talking about the scene where uh, he's quoting from on the waterfront into yes. the mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting scene. The way I've always kind of read into it is that it is very specifically kind of a uh uh what's a, what's the phrase I'm looking for kind of a reckoning with specifically the relationship with his brother which is mm-hmm. arguably the most severed of them all like yes absolutely after that uh, after that horrendous uh, rampage that mm-hmm. he goes on a little over halfway through the movie uh, they almost never speak again except for one time when Joey wants absolutely nothing to do with Jake like ever again. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I think that is what that specific scene is talking about. Uh, But I also think there is a way to read into it with a larger context saying like, I could have really been something. I could have been amazing. Uh, It's exactly the ending speech from on the waterfront. I could have been a contender instead of a bum, which is what I am. And I think it's all about... I think it's all about sort of reading into the way he says that is he, has he gotten here uh, through his own faults or through the faults of others? Obviously we know it's his own fault, but does he know that? I think that's the key and it's difficult to say, isn't it? Um, It
1: is, but even more so like there's that scene which sort of makes you feel like Is he taking responsibility or is he blaming the world for what happened to him? Which Mm -hmm. then again, you don't know. Should he be redeemed because he knows it was his fault? But immediately after, because he's about to go on stage, I think they tell him, I don't know, that it's crowded or something. And he starts doing like the shadow boxing and like I'm the boss. So it's like, did he learn his lesson? Is that enough to keep him satisfied that there's a crowd there for him? So in that sense, I'm not sure how to feel about him as a character in the end does that mean he didn't learn his lesson does that mean he has a chance to still redeem himself in this other way like i'm mm. not sure
0: that's an interesting question so yeah. so what so what you're saying is um does uh, there's a way to read into that that he's kind of just trying to cash in on his life story essentially
1: yes and so i think his his demeanor changes when he hears that there's a crowd for him you know mm-hmm. he's here, like lamenting his life and his severed relationship with his brother, but there's a crowd outside, so I'm the boss, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about it yeah. that way. That's fascinating. That that uh, that he's just sort of like he knows, but he doesn't care. I think that's a consistent mm-hmm. motif throughout Maybe, the yeah. the entire movie. Where and and this is part of what makes it such a you know such a kind of a harrowing journey to to use sort of a, a striking critic adjective there is that uh, there are there are like highs and lows throughout this movie and and you do get the sense in some of those early scenes that like this doesn't have to be bad like you know you've got yeah. a thing going obviously and and i think one of the one of the very most important scenes is when we see Joe Pesci sort of go nuts on Frank Vincent. And so what I think that is trying to imply is that there is kind of this uh, kind of this rage to use the adjective in the title in, in their very blood, you know what I'm right, saying? Like, yeah. like they both uh, susceptible to it and it's only because Jake is a boxer and has an outlet for it that, that he's able to, you know, keep it going for mm-hmm. so long until eventually you know the levy just breaks that yeah. one day when he's trying to fix the TV and everything and uh and uh what was i what was i getting up for oh yeah so so there is this inherent rage but you also get the sense that like it would be so easy it would be just as easy to work it out, you know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. I know that sounds like a kind of a vague, you know, just piece of advice, like, eh, figure it out, you bum, or something (laughs) like that. Uh, I think that's part of what Scorsese's doing is that he's planting this idea in your mind that this is is not like a foregone conclusion. The way that things turned out is not a foregone conclusion. And I think it's worth noting, uh, just to give a little bit, just a little bit of a background on how this sort of uh, came to be, where Jake Lamato is listed in the credits as a consultant and actually trained Robert De Niro as a boxer. Apparently, De Niro is like a great boxer, so oh. there there was a backup career right there if if uh, acting didn't work out. But regardless, <laughs> uh, and Jake Lamato was like you know giving a lot of uh, corroboration, like saying, "Yep, that's pretty faithful to what happened," and this movie does not like you know does not. Uh, uh succumb to kind of the kind of the kind of the ways that jake is pulling for sympathy you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. like the fact that jake lamotta himself was fine with this shows there is a lot of remorse in the real man at least uh, maybe not necessarily the character that de is playing so mm-hmm. yeah I don't, d- does that answer uh your question at all i, I know i went on for a long time kind of
1: oh my god i don't remember my question it was uh But yes, you answered it, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
0: sure, yeah. We were we were talking about uh the way that, you know, was it Was he remorseful reflection? at the end?
1: Yeah. Right. And yeah. right. Yeah, that's the thing, like you know, you see a story in in a movie and it's mm-hmm. not over there, especially if it's a true story and you take in, into account all the things behind the scenes and the consulting with the real person and everything, of course, there's definitely more to it. Um, I just think it was a very intriguing ending. It was one of those things where, if you had left it one way, maybe it would have been too sad. You know, if he had just been remorseful, it's like, oh, that's such a sad story. But then for him to have this sort of small victory in the end, kind of leaves yeah. you wondering, oh, is he? Is he sorry? Is he not sorry? Is he all right? I don't know. I think it's yeah. it's a good way to end it. Is what I was trying to say.
0: You know what? Something something just occurred to me though, uh, and I might just I might be just grasping at straws mm-hmm. here uh or seeing something that isn't there but if you'll recall there is there are there are three or uh, i should say two separate scenes with uh jake lamada later in life the weight gain mm-hmm. version of de niro where we see him performing in the front of a crowd in one of them. uh, It's a club that he owns, Jake LaMotta's club. And the crowd seems to be into it. Like he's having a good time. They're having a good time and stuff. The second time it's at this, like, you know, uh, it's at this like dingy little dive bar. It looks like, and, and the crowd couldn't care less about it. So I'm wondering if, Uh, What you were talking about earlier when that person walks into the dressing room and Jake says, is there is there a crowd out there was and the person answered like, oh, yeah, sure. There's a crowd. Why not? Oh, Uh, Could it have been sarcastic? Because there's also uh, what we see uh, seconds before that is the sort of the marquee sign out front by uh, the club where he's performing. It says Jake LaMotta and also, you know, Rod Serling, Patty Chayefsky, (laughs) a bunch of others. So maybe they're not there for him. And this is just sort of whoever it was that was walking into that dressing room. That was just their way of being like, yeah, whatever you know yeah that's
1: really interesting actually.
0: there's so much to read into this yeah ending. there
1: is a lot a lot to read <laughs> and then also him also probably knowing but not caring like he'll take that you know yeah. it's like oh yeah there's a crowd whether it's for me or not i'll take it mm-hmm. so yeah that's oh that was really interesting
0: maybe he's fully aware that uh, that you know like i got off easy i spent a little while in jail like really yeah. uh i i ruined or at least severely impacted a lot of lives I should be getting a worse punishment, but Hey, I'll take it. Like, yeah, I I think that's the thing is that it is, it is an objective look at this person's life. I think if there was like narration over it, uh, a la taxi driver, another Scorsese De Niro movie, um, I think it would have been we would have gotten a little bit more of a line on how not only we're supposed to feel about Jake, but how he feels about himself. And so Mm. I think the choice to just show us the events is was a really great choice. And the the script went through like a ton of revisions like a ton of people worked on this uh you know de niro was the one who initially sort of got the idea for it matter of fact on the set of the godfather uh part two he was reading jake lamotta's memoir and so that's mm-hmm. where this all came about and it took a long time but scorsese eventually was in the in the hospital because of a drug overdose and thought you know what finally fine i'll do it at last and he really started to connect to jake lamada it begs the question was that connection that scorsese was feeling from sympathy or or again sort of that uh uh criticism that we're hmm. giving the character
1: that's interesting i didn't know scorsese was going through that when he decided to make the movie
0: yeah yeah and it uh and he was at a really bad place, and it was De Niro himself who came to Marty and was like, you know, so let's give it one more shot, huh? And Marty was <laughs> like, all right, fine. And he thought that this was going to be his last movie. Uh, and then, you know, it I was think such- about that being.
1: Forty years ago, and he I thought know. it was going to be his last movie. That's crazy.
0: And he's still going, and like all the I awesome know. work he's put out since then. I think the movie he did right after this was The King of Comedy, which is like <laughs> another one of his very best movies. Uh, also with De Niro, who he lost all the weight and then did The King of Comedy. Yes. So, yeah, that's uh, that, that is a weird thing to think about. Uh, but it would have been, it would have been really legendary, maybe even more legendary than it is now, if that did end up being the last Scorsese movie, you know?
1: Yeah, maybe. It's crazy how timing adds or takes away meaning from things. Like, Mm -hmm. would this have been... Because as far as I know, I think the reviews were kind of mixed for the movie. Like, they praised a lot of De Niro's performance and the editing, but they were sort of like lukewarm on the story. I'm not sure. But it got nominated for a bunch of stuff. So, I don't know. I don't know if it had been his last movie, how it would have been received, if that would have been different. I think people, I think that plays into your mind when you watch a movie as well. Someone's like, oh, this is the last movie so-and-so made. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that emotionally plays with you in how you perceive a movie as well.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think of other retired actors or directors. Uh, I think Daniel Day-Lewis comes to mind, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Phantom Thread was was the oh so-called last one.
1: <laughs> that movie's so amazing. I know yeah. we're not—we not, don't have to start with the movie, but that movie really surprised me. I did not yeah. expect that I was going to like it because, in every way, that movie is Oscar bait. You're like, oh, it's stuffy and it's like, you know, <laughs> about yeah. you know couture and this guy and the way it's done. And I saw that movie and I just—I was so in love from the very beginning. Part because Daniel Day Lewis is just a genius, but another yeah. part just like this crazy story of this man and this woman. I. Anyway, let's move on. Raging Bull. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah.
0: I do want to see Phantom Threat again, but yes, beside, oh, so <laughs> that good. is besides the point. Um and uh and and just to I, I found out something uh kind of interesting about the actual Oscar ceremony the following year. Where, oh, I haven't even uh, checked. It, it's 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 really interesting. It's the it was the day after Reagan was shot. By John Hinckley Jr. because of Jodie Foster from Taxi Driver. And so Scorsese was like, I'm taking no chances. Went to the ceremony with disguised bodyguards from the FBI. Are you
1: serious? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) And uh, and uh, I think I think he left uh, just before uh the best picture was given Raging Bull did not win it was actually ordinary people which I haven't seen. I've heard it's fine. But like that's kind of that happens
1: that happens quite often.
0: It's so much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact we're we're talking about another best picture winner later on in the show, but uh yeah. So it's just they, they kind of they had this feeling like the writings on the wall were probably not going to win Best Picture. Mm. Bobby, that's what they call him. Bobby won Best Actor. So uh, I think we're good. Uh, and of course, uh, Joe Pesci and Kathy Moriarty were also nominated in the yeah. supporting roles. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Kathy Moriarty, who plays Vicky Lomata, uh mm-hmm. Jake's second wife, who was who featured prominently across most of the movie. Uh, what did you think of uh, her performance when you first saw this?
1: God, I don't remember very well her performance, and yeah. that makes me sad. Actually,
0: I think I, I think it's it's a very underplayed uh, uh, performance that she gives, and I think it actually works wonderfully on the uh, on the Blu-ray I have of mm-hmm. Raging Bull. There, they have an interview with her on the Johnny Carson show, Ooh. and and. Uh, and I watch it right after seeing the movie and like I, either she didn't do a lot of acting or the casting was just perfect. Right. Like she is her character, uh, in the movie, uh, uh Just kind of that, you know, that little bit of attitude that she has and also this insistence like, listen, no, I'm not going to put up with anything I don't want to put up with. And I think she emerges as kind of uh, a little bit of a, a triumphant character by the end of this movie where, yeah, you know, she she took the hits literally, but also
1: at the end of the day <laughs> she
0: did i i don't mean to make light of uh, any of the abuse she received but you know uh she was no, a no, victim no. in this i understand she was a victim across you know throughout the events of this movie but also at the end she does end up you know taking custody of the kids saying like listen i'm not we're not putting up with this any longer you're clearly you're beyond uh fixing or at least in a way that we're interested in staying on board with. And so uh, I think she's not like in a ton of the movie, but I think she really makes a mark when she does. And you can tell that there is a genuine connection between the two of them, the characters and the actors. Uh, And apparently like she had a great time on on the set and everything, so that's always good to hear. And I think it feeds into uh, the tragic elements where you see early on, like they do clearly Uh, share a connection with each other. But of course, there are just... There's just too much baggage on Jake's part. And that he wasn't able to maintain this relationship is just another element of the tragedy.
1: Yeah. I don't recall her performance a lot. I don't remember thinking it was bad or anything. I just... Mm. I think one of the reasons is Scorsese, his portrayal of women... Are very often mm. the wives of these men, you know? Yeah. Which there's nothing wrong with, but they're sort of like a part of the men's character. So for Jake, she is like this, you know, source of jealousy and paranoia and and fearfulness that she's gonna cheat on him, that she's gonna mm. do something, that she's gonna make him look like a fool. So I do remember her being very sassy and not taking any of his crap, but yeah. The story is really more about him and his relationship with his brother. Like, she is sort of, um, and I'm not saying I think this, but she is sort of like the trophy that he gets, you know, when he's moving on up. She's like the younger, more beautiful wife. And, and he's afraid to lose her. But the way he, he shows that is, you know, with violence and with a lot of rage and a lot of jealousy. And, and that's as much as I remember about it, about her performance per se.
0: You know, I don't think you're wrong. There is definitely there's an element uh, that she's kind of this angelic presence in his life. Matter mm. of fact, she's dressed in white a lot. I think that's clearly the imagery yes. you're trying to evoke, and that is definitely a motif among a lot of uh, Scorsese movies. I'm curious. I I can't recall off the top of my head. Have you seen uh, Goodfellas? Yes, we saw. What do you think? What do you think of uh, Lorraine Bracco's character in oh, that? Do I, you think that she falls into the same trap?
1: Well, I think she is sort of in the same box but Lorraine Mm -hmm. is so much more interesting I feel um than than say Vicky because I can't explain it I feel like she had a more active performance and she Mm. also just as much as Vicky like she didn't let him get away with his stuff even though he did whatever he wanted but she felt more essential to the role and the life that he was building and I guess in that sense, it doesn't feel the same, but I also, one of the reasons that I don't, or I think I had issues with Raging Bull is because Scorsese does follow a particular formula a lot, because I think he's very interested in these men's and their rise and the fall of them, and it's almost always the same you know they've been married before and the first wife is sort of like the brunette the mousy one and once they get to where they want to be they're not with her and they're with the platinum blonde who's younger and more beautiful um although Lorraine wasn't blonde but it doesn't matter but he did have didn't he have a blonde though (laughs) afterwards he cheated on her
0: with someone else uh Henry Hill you mean
1: uh uh, Yeah.
0: yeah uh yeah there were there were actually a couple of them that's uh, yeah. a couple uh, uh, other women on <laughs> the side. Oopsie
1: daisies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so in that sense, I feel like Scorsese follows a pattern that I I guess by the time I saw Raging Bull, I had already seen too many of his movies to be like, oh, this is very similar to me. This is very familiar to Scorsese. But mm. um, yeah, so not I've only that, always had a... Pro- mm-hmm.
0: I'm just going to say probably a lot of other filmmakers who have tried to emulate Scorsese a little bit.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, it doesn't, it's not something I hate, but it is something that I have noticed and it bothers me a little bit that sometimes this is the role of the women and, um, you know, not to get too like annoyed about it or anything, because, you know, I understand the world he's representing and understand the role that the women have in it and the way the men worked, you know, it's always like either mafias or boxers or, you know, Wall Street. It makes sense. But then it feels mm-hmm. like they all kind of fall into that box.
0: Yeah, I can see what you're saying. And I don't think you're wrong at all. Yeah. Um One thing I do uh, I think is worth pointing out is that specifically in comparing uh, uh, Kathy Moriarty, Vicky Lamanna to Lorraine Bracco in Goodfellas, I think that uh, Karen Hill in Goodfellas is a much is a character with much more visible personality. I think that's part of the key. Yes,
1: Uh, I understand. Yeah, I agree. Whereas uh,
0: whereas Vicky is a very as as I said a very kind of subdued Uh, a person kind of her presence is just sort of a, you can tell she's kind of just uh, keeping watch over everything or trying to at Mm. least and trying to maintain order. And yet there is this force, her husband, Jake LaMotta, who's kind of whether or not he realizes it just kind of opposing it at, at, at many turns to the point where eventually she just gets Mm. fed up with it and says, uh, I've had enough of it. I would be so fascinated. And there was actually a second Jake LaMotta movie a few years ago. I heard it wasn't that great. I would be fascinated to see the same story uh, presented from Vicky's perspective. Like, that would be... It would be really fascinating uh, just to see what it looks like from that other side where we have a little bit of a better idea on how the protagonist feels about this person. But again, I feel like I have this feeling that that movie would also uh, kind of fall into the same thing of it, of just being about Vicky as she relates to Jake. You know what I'm saying?
1: Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But speaking of So I think you have a point. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, speaking of Vicky, I've never fully understood and I'm not sure if you're supposed to, do you think that she cheated on him?
0: Uh, I don't think so. Um, I think, uh, and it's, I've seen the movie like, uh, like almost a dozen times at this point, I've always tried to figure out because there is that, you know, huge, uh, confrontation, the rampage that mm-hmm. we've been referring to a couple of times. And, uh, where Jake starts to suspect that uh, his brother, Joey and a, a couple of the other, like, you know, mob guys who are sort of handling Jake's career that maybe she's been, you know, sleeping with them or seeing them or something. And I think what, I think what happens in that scene is that, uh is that she wasn't doing that i think i think she was being very faithful unlike jake might i add and uh
1: fair point yeah
0: yeah there you go but but i think what happens is that he was so insistent about it and so uh unwilling to hear you know just her honest answer that eventually she was just like, "What do you want to hear? What if I said yes? What right. would that? What difference would it make? Would you behave any differently?" And so I think that's kind of the key to that scene. Uh, I actually, I'm, I, I'm not sure if the if uh, Lamana in real life has ever uh, confirmed or denied this. I'd be curious to look that up. But if you're asking like in my head canon, I don't think she did. I think that was all a result of Jake's, uh, again, just infantile rage and stuff like that.
1: Right. Because it does make sense. I mean, I think it is um, vague on purpose. Because you do kind of feel for a moment that everyone's conspiring conspiring against him. Mm-hmm. And you would be like, that would be the biggest betrayal, wouldn't it? Like your brother and your wife and how dare they? And what if it did happen? So I think part of it wants you to feel like he's right and not behaving as he did, but in having his suspicions and confronting them. Hmm. And then of course, everything gets out of control and he ends up you know, betraying in the worst way the people closest to him, the people who are taking care of him, the people who believe in him. But but I did always wonder, because it's like, well, what if he had been right to be upset? Not to do the things he did, but to be upset. And what if Joey's resentful this time, but maybe Joey did something that he shouldn't have done, you know? Like, I always wonder if that was in the air... Um, if that was ever answered or if that was something that we're like, Oh, who knows? Maybe it did happen. Hmm.
0: That's interesting. So you're saying that like uh, we're meant to, it's sort of playing with our mind a little bit where we're being led to believe that, Hey, maybe, maybe there is something going on. And then it kind of pulls the rug out from under us when he overreacts, like to the millionth power, you know?
1: Well, yeah, I think the movie slowly lets you think that he's right to have these Doubts because they present you mm-hmm. certain scenes where you're like, oh, what is she doing, and and what is Joey doing, and why did Joey get mad at him? Oh, what's his, name?
0: I uh, his at, name? At Frank Vincent,
1: yes, you know why did he get so upset, and and so I think it does lead you into believing that maybe he is right to have these suspicions, and because no one completely answers answers it, um, but because he blew up, you know, there's no way he could ever get them to admit if they did do something cuz he he blew up and he hurt them both physically so what does it matter his reaction was so over the top that even if he had right. been right his actions were wrong so i always mm. wonder if maybe he hadn't done that would we have found out if something really did happen you know cuz i think what he did trumps whatever they might have done that we are never sure if it did happen um right. what am i trying to say I don't know. I I
0: totally, I totally get what you're saying though. I think whether, I think that's kind of it right there. I think you hit the nail on the head Mm -hmm. where whether like it almost, it doesn't matter really, uh, past a certain point, which, which just escalates so quickly. That's part of what makes it such a, you know, such a harrowing sequence to watch is just how fast it all goes directly to hell, you know?
1: Yes, completely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I think I think that's fascinating. Um, and uh, again, I think I'm I'm sure that the uh, the actual individuals involved could uh, could confirm or deny these. Um, yes, but just to, just in the context of the movie, I think that is the point they're trying to get across: is that it literally it doesn't matter. And at this point, I'm reminded of the scene very early on where they're in the kitchen and Jake tells Joey to hit him in the face repeatedly. And mm-hmm. eventually he just gives up. It's like, I, this is what, what are you doing? What are you trying to prove? Are you just trying to <laughs> prove that you're like, you know, a, a masculine man and can take a punch. This is, this is pointless. Uh, so I right. think that kind of, that kind of informs the entire rest of the movie coming after it. So yeah, there's so much to think about. As I think that's, uh, that's part of what makes it such a complex uh, movie with so many different reactions is that, there's so many different ways to read into it. So I'm glad that we're talking about uh, a good many of them today.
1: Yeah. And actually i never would have thought of half of these things if we weren't talking about it. I think I would actually want to watch it again, you know, cause Mm. I think you watch, I think the first time you watch a movie, especially if you have certain expectations, it's sort of, you watch it at the surface level. It's like, okay, this was appealing to me, not appealing to me. That's as much as I can say. Um, and then maybe if you give it a chance one more time, you start seeing a lot of other things that maybe you hadn't even thought of before, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, yeah, me too. I have, I have, a, I have one last thing uh, that I want to bring up, and then if you have any mm-hmm. final thoughts, then then uh, we can get to that in a second. But one thing I was thinking about during this movie, and this is get, this is kind of a you know a little bit of a leap, maybe it doesn't deserve to be brought up in this context but i was thinking about how there are certain movies from uh from yesteryear so to speak from the past from many decades in the past that clearly have a lot of uh, of influence and mm-hmm. a lot of uh, significance in history and yet they they have aged in such a way that makes them uh, th- that makes them difficult to watch today i think a couple of uh, examples that come to mind are uh, gone with the wind for one thing which has been brought up uh, a lot over the past year weirdly enough yeah and also uh, and also birth of a nation now those are two huge leaps like the, the about completely different things but i've heard not a not a lot but just a small handful of critics who have argued that maybe the time for for Raging Bull has passed that it's just too difficult to uh, stomach a lot of the time for, for maybe a lot of modern viewers. I was wondering, did, did, did you ever have any feeling like that? Like maybe this movie's time has passed or is, or was it a little bit more uh, just, you know, critical? Like, do you, did you have a thought on that?
1: Well, I don't mean to sound completely dumb, but what exactly is it about *Raging Bull* that people couldn't be able to tolerate today, or, or not enjoy?
0: It's I've I've heard that it's the uh, the domestic abuse that kind of thing. The fact oh. that the character who does it is the protagonist, and in certain ways. Uh, feel like might be asking for our sympathy, whether or not it's actually deserved. That's kind of the objection that I've heard.
1: Um. Well, no, I don't think so. I think when I watched the movie, I didn't think of anything like that because I don't know. It just didn't occur to me. I was only just now reading, like refreshing my memory about it. And I was reading the plot of it. And the only part where I winced is when he is going out or is trying to talk to a 15 year old. I was like, oh, yeah, that's no. another thing. But, <laughs> but aside from that, um, in terms of like the violence and everything, I think it's sort of juvenile to leave certain topics off of the screen or off cinema just because you think they're morally wrong. I mean, it is morally wrong. I'm not trying to say this is a subjective thing. Domestic violence is wrong, period. But to just sort of completely censor that from movies doesn't make it go away. There's still domestic violence. There's still men like this. And I think people get confused in thinking because this is the main character we're supposed to root for him. That's not necessarily the case. It could be just a portrayal of a Batman and you understanding more what it comes from does not mean that you suddenly agree that he should do these things or that this is how someone should behave. And I think that sort of happened as well with um, the Joker last year. People were like, Oh, who would like this movie? And it's like, no one is saying he's right. It's just an interesting Point of view, and if we just keep using the same point of view, it gets very tiring, you know. And and again, you're not celebrating his choices. It's like you said, it's like a cautionary tale. And I think it is important to continue to have stories and movies about bad people because it just it just makes for a different story and a different feeling altogether. At no point am I thinking, yeah, he did great beating up his wife and. Ah, uh, you know, beating up his brother who was always there for him—that's not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, "Wow, you messed up your entire life when you could have had everything," you know. And uh, no, I did not find it hard to watch in in that sense.
0: Okay, yeah, I was I, I was curious about that, um, and uh, and yeah, I think I think you're definitely right. With if there's one thing we've learned in the past handful of years it's mm-hmm. that history does repeat itself no matter how obvious yeah. it it you know things might seem uh that kind of stuff will always happen so we we kind of got to hammer in these lessons over and over again uh i think another classic example of the uh in air quotes you're missing the point by mm-hmm. idolizing them characters is brad <laughs> pitt from fight club i think oh, that yes. character is clearly the villain of the movie (laughs) like i don't know very clearly (laughs) (laughs) and yet he's always viewed as like the really cool protagonist and stuff
1: well i think it's because that is how edward norton's character sees him in the beginning and that's how a lot of men see it like i've i've always had issues with fight club because there's no man alive that won't come up to you and be like have you seen fight club oh my god you should watch fight club (laughs) and i'm like okay I get it. And then when I saw it, I thought, <laughs> <laughs> it's no joke. Like every man, and I don't know if this is just to women, but probably to everyone, they just saw Fight Club and their world exploded. And oh at first, gosh. at first, I didn't understand it. I thought, this is so childish. But, <laughs> I to- but after a while, I'm like, I get it because it's the pressure that men have to be a certain way that... As women, sometimes we don't think about, it. we just think like, oh, you poor men who have everything. But no, there is a pressure of to men to act a certain way, to be a certain way, to have certain things to therefore feel like they are successful. And Brad Pitt just says, you know, screw all that. Let's just do whatever we want, anarchy. And I understand the appeal of the character. But as the movie mm. progresses, even the, the character of Edward Norton goes like, oh, no, this is wrong. Like, this is not... This is too far. And and yeah, I think it's just like they take a moment in the movie, which is very cool because Brad Pitt was very cool. And they sort of like idolize that moment. And in the end, you end up idolizing the wrong character, so to speak.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the memory of the movie is sort of distilled yes. down to a handful of images. And yeah. those images are cool. So that's what the movie is often thought of as. Uh, that yeah. was that was the highlight of my day, by the way. Just just hearing Maria go <laughs> off because <laughs> I gotta admit, I've seen Fight Club a couple of times. Never been a huge fan. Like it's fine, but it, it's it has not uh, yeah. informed my entire life story in the way. That, <laughs> yeah,
1: well, that's what that I thought to too. Worked. But the problem I had is that I knew how it ended. For some, I don't remember how I knew what the whole thing was, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't as exciting. But but yeah, there's something about Fight Club that appealed to men at a very like primal level. The same way when Three Hundred came out, everyone thought they were oh, a Spartan, gosh. and you were like, I "No, Toby, you you work at a gas station. <laughs> you're not you're not a Spartan." Which yes. there's nothing wrong with, <laughs> but you know, um, but at the same time, I get it. You know, like I think women have the same thing with s- some kind of movies, and men have that. You know, it appeals to them at a very primal level, and I think that's fine. And Fight Club was that to me. And I was like, I don't really get it, but then I got it. And then I kind of like understood better where, where people were coming from.
0: It happens. It does happen Uh, where, you know, something just doesn't hit us. We, we talked about that Mm -hmm. earlier in the conversation and, um, And I think that's that's that uh, definitely applies to this movie a lot. And I guess what I meant to I I guess the the point that I want to uh, sort of emphasize a little bit is that if if someone just does not feel the need to uh, to to read into these journeys like these complex stories to go on the journey uh i think obviously their mileage may vary and i think that i think that there's there's nothing wrong with that and so uh i guess that's just kind of what i wanted to emphasize is that there are some there are some people who just do not see the function of this like they the function of this of movies like this make no sense to them uh just sort of reminding us of the darkness in the world, but I do agree that it, it is very, very necessary to understand these things and to, uh, uh, to even try and sympathize only to realize that we can't, I think that's kind of the magic of uh, magic is a little bit of a whimsical term, (laughs) but that's kind of the power of raging bull. And that's the reason why, uh, I've loved it for so long and will and will likely continue to for the remainder of my days, uh, And so I I think with that, I want to ask, Maria, did you have any final thoughts that you wanted to give on Raging Bull before we move on? Um,
1: Final thoughts. I, as I said before, it's not one of my favorite movies, but it doesn't mean I don't think people should watch it. I think if anybody were to ask me, do you think I should watch Raging Bull? I think you should. I think the, how do I say this? To qualify a movie as you either love it or not is a very small, limited view of movies, you know, like there's plenty of mm-hmm. movies that I've seen that I don't think I would watch again or that I say I would love. But but they impacted me. You know, they they made an impact in my life and and I remember them or scenes. Sometimes a movie is just worth it for a scene. And I think there's a lot of elements in Raging Bull that if you're like me and didn't really care for the main character, there's a lot to appreciate. The filmmaking is extraordinary. The acting is incredible from everyone. The editing, the cinematography, there's some shots that you will never forget in that movie. So if you are hesitant because of what I said, I would still say, watch the movie because it's worth having certain experiences. And I think movies Mm -hmm. go beyond just like, oh, I watched this thing and it's over. I think You kind of live through them and learn things through them, and I think *Raging Bull* is worth watching for that.
0: One last thing I wanted to just just admire is uh, is the editing of this movie, like you said a second ago. It is, it, it's really phenomenal, and I think it's it's not like a super long movie. It's uh, two hours and ten minutes. It's longer than a lot though, and it really doesn't feel like it. Like it does not feel drawn no. out whatsoever. And uh, all credit goes to uh, Thelma Schoonmaker. I hope that's I think that's how her name is pronounced. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I read a little fun fact that the Motion Picture Editing Guild in 2012 named this the best edited movie of all time. And you know oh. what? Fair enough. I I, I, mean, I can't fight that yeah. too hard. Yeah,
1: that's incredible. So,
0: yeah, really, really astonishing in in all ways. And I think uh, we're of two different minds, but it just shows how uh, you know how complex this art form that we call cinema is. And so I was delighted to have this conversation. But Maria, we're not done yet. Oh boy, we've got another movie to talk about <laughs> yes another oscar darling matter of fact one of only three movies to win the five biggest uh, uh, awards at the oscars in history it is celebrating its 45th anniversary this november milos formans one flew over the cuckoo's nest Why do you think they might think that? they don't make a bit of sense to me. Do you think there's anything wrong with your mind, really? Not a thing, Doc. Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? Your hand is staining my window. God almighty, she's got you guys coming and going. Change never hurt, huh? Little variety. Oh, Jesus! Ah, <laughs> oh, come on, you're not gonna say that now. You're not gonna say that now. You're gonna pull that hen house shit now. When the vote, the chief just voted, it was ten to nine. I want that television set turned on right now. I don't think he's overly psychotic. I want something too. I think he's dangerous. <laughs> Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out. I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Well, you're not. Hey, wait a minute. Ah! See how easy it is. Oh! Oh, and now Maria, I'd like to ask. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. So, I'd like to ask uh, the same question that I did last time. What uh, how did you uh, how did you come to be aware of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and also how you first saw it and things of that nature?
1: Oh boy. So, I don't really recall One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest until I saw it. I do think it was again mm-hmm. one of those things where it's like, "Oh, have you seen Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest?" I'm like, "No, I haven't." And I don't know why, but it's a very iconic movie poster. I don't know what it is about his face, about the way he looks. And also somewhat deceiving. Like if you think you're going into a a (laughs) sweet, fun comedy, that's not what's happening. Don't be. Although
0: it is... I think it's a very funny movie, but it yeah, is. It's, it's
1: funny, but that. there's something about the poster that you're like, "Oh, I'm going to have a good time watching this movie." It changes <laughs> very quickly. So, oh, yeah. it's I don't know, it's a very iconic <laughs> sort of expression from Jack Nicholson. He's the one in the poster and he's very young, very handsome. And I think oh, it was yeah. one of those things. Again, people are like you have to watch it and in a way, like you, I'm like, I have to watch all of these like nominated movies, Oscar winning movies. I must know what is considered the greatest cinema of all time, which I, never mind. I was going to say something about the Oscars, but never mind. Um, so,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, we are not one to shy away from slamming the Academy. Yes. Believe you me. But
1: then that's like another episode and it'll take forever. But never mind. You, You guys know what I'm trying to say.
0: Sure. Um, right, right.
1: So I think, yeah, it was just that mentality of like, I have to watch this amazing performance by Jack Nicholson. And I think I watched it with my boyfriend a while back because he had seen it. He was like, yes, you have to watch it. I'll watch it with you. And then I did. And then I felt mm. bad all day and the next day after. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah.
0: It, it felt bad because of what ha- what happened in the movie yes. itself?
1: Yes, the the yeah. themes and the the message of the movie and everything. Yes, it really it was heavy. It was a lot.
0: It's a real downer. Yeah, it's a real downer. Sometimes, uh, and uh, and I think that's it's such a wild mishmash of tones that it's mm. amazing it works as well as it does. You know? Yeah, uh, that's true. I think I, I I had kind of a similar story where it was it's it's weird because. I Prior to seeing it, I knew almost nothing about it. I think, like you, it yeah. was pretty much just the poster yeah. that it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars and that uh, and that Jack Nicholson was in it, and apparently pretty good. Turns out, there are a ton of really recognizable actors in this movie.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> recognizable them, and unrecognizable.
0: At the same time, which is weird. Yes. A lot of them before you know settling into the image that we know of them uh specifically first screen appearance of Danny DeVito <laughs>
1: okay can we please talk about that cuz i've seen this movie twice in my life and i remember the uh-huh. first time like you said you you get into this movie and you're like oh it's you and oh it's you and you and then this guy seemed like familiar but not and then and then the the yeah. roll credits and then i see the name danny devito i'm like yes. are you kidding me how did I had that the just exact
0: same thing
1: why does he look so similar and so different in this movie
0: it's bizarre same exact thing with christopher lloyd where there's no one else on earth with christopher lloyd's face and yet i'm like who is how do i know that guy it was crazy So, and also
1: like I watched it yesterday again with Mm. my boyfriend who has seen the movie. And I remember that traumatized me so much that in my brain, I'm like, that's Danny DeVito for sure. I'm never going to forget that. But again, I'm looking at him and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not sure if it's Danny DeVito. So I asked my boyfriend, like, is that Danny DeVito? And he's like... No, it's not. But then he follows it with, but he's someone famous, (laughs) I'm pretty sure. And then I had to look up the. What? I know. He was like, it's not Danny DeVito, but it's someone famous. Like he recognized him. And then I had to show him the information. And he was, he literally went like, oh, f off. Like, I'm sorry. I'm not so, no, he's supposed to curse. (laughs) But that was literally his
0: reaction. I'll censor it. It's fine. Okay.
1: So yeah, it was just like, we both were again in disbelief that it's Danny DeVito. And I don't understand how that (laughs) happened.
0: It's so crazy. Like, I'm trying to think of what did Danny DeVito do between One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Batman Returns? Like, that was the earliest movie that I could think of. Me
1: too. How many years? How many years between those movies?
0: That's 17 years. Apparently with nothing. No. Are you serious? You know what? I'm going to look up right now. Uh, Terms of Endearment. Oh, he was in Romancing the Stone. I forgot about that. So okay. that but that is a that is something else. And twins of course. So I guess that would of be course. an earlier one. But yeah, pretty besides that it it's kind of just that leap <laughs> that 17 year leap. leap. Wow. Yeah. And so and yeah, and uh, and uh, the other one that uh, I really love is a uh, Brad Dourif, who you probably know as uh, the voice of Chucky for uh, almost thirty years, but also Grima Wormtongue from Lord of the Rings plays the kind of the young guy in the mental ward in this movie. Uh, <gasps> Billy, is that? <laughs> is <he warm-tongue? laughs> Did you not know? Really?
1: That? No. That's him
0: that's it oh, yeah. looks
1: like so different oh my god <laughs>
0: brad durf is is, is a good-looking young man in 1975 yes. oh. i mean 27 years will do a lot to you
1: <laughs> yes that is insane
0: <laughs> yeah oh wow yeah there there are lots of others to to sort of uh to sort of round out uh kind of the prominent cast we have uh sydney Lassick as a uh, as a uh, cheswick who's uh not an insanely recognizable actor. Uh, we also have Will Sampson who plays a uh, chief, the uh, the Native American uh, patient at the mental ward who might be my favorite character in the whole movie and I thought this say. both times. Yeah. Uh, he he was uh, he was uh, in another movie called Orca in 1977 which I talked about on the extra milestone about Jaws which is one of the worst movies of all time in the best possible way i'm not even going to explain why just watch orca and witness witness the glory it is a it is a jaws ripoff through and through like the first scene is a killer whale ramming a great white shark out of the ocean saying there's a new sea creature in town that's how the movie starts (laughs) i'm sold i
1: I will watch that movie for sure
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it starts uh Richard Harris, aka the first Dumbledore from the first two Harry Potter movies. So
1: Richard Harris, yes, the Dumbledore.
0: (laughs) Who's this Michael Gambin guy? I don't know.
1: Yeah, who is this
0: guy? Yeah. Uh so yeah, and of course we have uh Louise Fletcher in her Oscar-winning uh role for lead actress as Nurse Ratchet, who has a who has a TV show on netflix starring sarah paulson i haven't gotten to watch that i really uh, i really am curious to uh so i wonder yeah. i wonder how it'll color this and of course jack nicholson as uh i'm gonna try to do my nicholson impression so it's, it's not do gonna it. be great but randall mcmurphy that's who it is <laughs> that's pretty good it's like it's nicholson is one of the impressions i can get like literally 40 percent of the time uh so um Matter of fact, okay, so I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here. I never in a million years thought I would say this. And Maria is going to gasp loudly when I say this. But if you want to, uh, you as of this past week, you can now follow me on TikTok where I'm doing a bunch of voice impressions. <laughs> and Jack Nicholson was one of them. I impersonated all of the Jokers uh, and uh, in a bunch of different videos. So I was able to get it that one time. So it's immortalized on video. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm sorry. Maria, part can,
1: of my brain just died. I can you tell you story. Your- Stunned. you are where you follow you where
0: on tiktok at oh, nolan sam that's me my lord you can see what my face looks like i've, I've been doing a bunch of uh, silly voices on there <laughs> if you guys the, don't if, even
1: understand when i met sam sam was like yeah. what is facebook and why and i'm like sam that's yes. probably the way to go in life and now yes. sam is on tiktok <laughs>
0: The version of me from three or four years ago would be, is, is rolling <laughs> over on a futon right now. Like that's <laughs> so. But to uh, be fair, I do way. think,
1: I do think TikTok suits your talents. Cause that's a perfect way to show all of your impressions and everything.
0: Yeah. And my scatterbrain nature and stuff. So it, it works, but, well, there you go. uh, regardless yes that is that that's kind of the that's the main uh cast of this movie and um yeah it's basically just this uh, mental ward in oregon filmed on location and uh we see jack nicholson show up they're not entirely sure whether or not he's actually has a mental illness and it's basically just jack nicholson raising hell causing an uprising in this mental institution much to the chagrin and disappointment and sheer rage of nurse ratchet and there's not there's not like one single plot thread it's just a bunch of almost little vignettes of different ways that randall mcmurphy raises hell in this institution and it's kind of delightful to see for a variety of reasons while also being a very uh serious drama so maria i want to ask I, I don't think we we've said it outright thus far mm-hmm. what what do you think of one flew over the cuckoo's nest are you a fan do you think it's uh, just okay what where do you stand on it?
1: i think it's a really great movie i again like you i i went into it not knowing much and i think for that reason, you sort of experience it experience it more profoundly because you don't mm-hmm. have any expectations. You don't know where it's leading you. So it did affect me very strongly. I think it's a fantastic movie. Yeah, and like you said, it kind of blends genres in a very interesting way. I mean, I think it's considered a drama film, but it is very funny and very lighthearted at times. And the way they sort of start moving into something more serious is very natural but also yeah. really hard to do in other movies.
0: I think it's and and I remember feeling the exact same way the first time I saw it uh when I was starting college. I just I think I just sort of randomly watched it cuz I felt like why not cross this off the old list. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking this is one of the most engrossing movies I've ever seen, not just because it's entertaining to watch but because it actually Uh, successfully allows me to empathize with the characters. You end up feeling the same way that they do, which is that we're just here all day, every day doing nothing. In comes this X factor, in comes Jack Nicholson, who is just suddenly making everything feel more interesting. And, uh, and it just escalates in such a believable way that by the time it gets to the end and they realize like, okay, we've got to, we've got to put a stop to this. You feel the tragedy of it. And although I think like the other movie we talked about, I think there's, there weren't a whole lot of other solutions, but at the same time, it's just a shame that things had to turn yes. out this way, you know?
1: Yes. I think in the most traditional sense of the word, this is a tragedy because mm-hmm. even though he wasn't a perfect character. Sure not to go into too much detail. He definitely <laughs> did not deserve what happened to him.
0: One of the things that I find most interesting about this movie is something, and I, I, re- I brought this up last week. I can't remember why exactly, but in uh, Roger Ebert's review of One full Over the Cuckoos announced, he talked about how comparing the viewings as a younger man and as an older man, when he first saw it in 1975, Roger Ebert find found himself uh, empathizing a lot more with jack nicholson naturally because you know it's it's uh, sort of the new generation coming in trying to sort of throw a wrench into things trying to revolt a little bit uh and this was what was going on a lot of the times there was it was just right in the wake of the countercultural movement matter of fact it takes place in 1963 so it would have been right on the cusp of that mm-hmm. and uh what he found when he watched it many years later as an adult was that he empathized a lot more with nurse ratchet, sort of the one trying to maintain order, trying to make, make sure things are all functioning. Okay. When in comes this just sort of just unbridled id, just this force of nature that it, that will stop at nothing to ruin it. And it's it's interesting the way that it sort of uh, transitions between those two perspectives. I was wondering, did you have one or the other that you found yourself uh, leaning towards?
1: It's so funny that you said that, because I was about to say <laughs> that, okay, I think I saw this movie for the first time, I would say maybe five years ago, which even then, I wasn't that young. I was 25, 26. Mm. So Enough of an adult that I would understand that Jack Nicholson's character is just chaotic to the daily routine that these patients need or seem to need. We don't know, that's what Nurse Ratchet says. But yeah. um yeah, he's disrupting whatever progress they are or not making. So but even then, I completely sympathize with him because He, even though he was a mess and he did things on purpose to create chaos, he was actually very kind to all of them and treated them like people in ways that the staff hadn't done yet, you know? Exactly. And he was very kind. He had like this zest for life. And again, you don't know if he's crazy or not. Maybe he's not um, as sane as he should be but i I think that's sort of the point we're all making and he makes it a lot it's like you're not crazier than any other person out there you know um mm-hmm. so i did sympathize with him originally and yesterday i saw it and i'm like this poor nurse ratchet who's trying to do her best <laughs> <laughs> to keep this place in check like obviously yes. not like it's really weird because in my mind even if you don't, and I think this will happen to anyone who watches the movie. You watch this movie and you might not remember all the details, but you remember having a lot of hatred for Nurse Ratchet. Like she is mm-hmm. hateful. She is probably considered one of the best villains, I think, in movies. Cause it's yeah. just, there's no joy in that woman. She is awful and she does <laughs> things that seem to be purposefully to hurt the patients, not physically, but yes, to shame them, humiliate them, but it's subtle. And then, but when I see it again now, I'm like, oh, she doesn't seem that bad. And I don't know what that says about me, but yeah, Yeah. I found myself thinking, oh, she's not as bad as I remember her. And I don't know if it's Mm -hmm. because I've seen worse things since then. I don't know if because every character in Game of Thrones is way worse than (laughs) she is. And now I'm like, yeah, people are evil, but yeah, seeing it now was like, oh, I don't remember her being, I remember her being worse. That's what I remember thinking recently.
0: Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. I think there's, and I would be fascinated to know if this was a conscious effort on the storyteller's part, because even the name Ratchet sounds like a (laughs) villain name, you know (laughs) what I'm saying? For sure. And, uh, and, uh, I, I happen to have pulled up just now that uh, on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains, Nurse Ratched was ranked the number five movie villain of all Ooh. time. I don't Ooh. know what I don't know exactly what year that was, but that's a lot. Uh, Jack Nicholson did not make the hero list, so I think that's very telling. That uh, yeah, that uh, the, the the way that they're certainly trying to paint Nurse Ratched as an antagonist. And so kind of by default, we view Jack Nicholson and the rest of the patients as the protagonist and I think there's there's certainly something to be said for that the way that because because we're taking such joy in the disruptions, uh, you know, when Jack Nicholson takes them out to go fishing, which is just just (laughs) delightful uh, when he hops the fence and like steals a bus and stuff or just, uh, you know, eventually vandalizes the interior of the mental ward, all kinds of things like that. It's so exciting to watch because we're getting to see these people who as far as we can tell are leading very stifled lives and by choice we find out that a lot of them are there by admission uh, voluntarily Mm -hmm. but we're getting to see them sort of express themselves and just sort of you know cut loose for lack of a better phrase and when we see this character nurse ratchet come in and try to stop that because she's a she's she's essentially stopping our fun you know what i'm saying mm, yeah and so that's th- why that's why we see her as the villain at least the first time and then less so as as we go on
1: yeah i think there is also something to be said about women and how they are villainized i think mm. it's a very common thing that um women are the one who stopped the fun. You know, men right. are being reckless and careless and we are enjoying that because it's fun. And women are the more the more grounded ones as characters. Yeah. And And because, like you said, because she's stopping this fun, then we sort of villainize her. I mean, there's plenty of reasons to villainize her. But I think sure. that's one of the biggest things. She is the authority. But I think when she starts to become a real villain, because I think also as I was watching the movie, she seems very pleasant. They respect her. She really mm-hmm. doesn't speak to them in a derogatory way. There are a few moments where you're like, why is she doing that? But, yeah. but nothing that you would alarm you immediately to think she's a horrible person. But it is because she sticks to the rules just for the sole reason of sticking to the rules, there's no humanity in her. And that makes you feel like she's the villain. And then, of course, things escalate and things get worse. But it is interesting to, as the movie goes by, because there's even one point where she, they're discussing like, Murphy's character, Mac, and they're saying, I don't think he's crazy. We should let him go. He's not crazy. And she sort of says, we just don't give up on our patience. If he's here, we're here to help him. And I don't know if that's something she meant. I don't know if she just wanted to keep him there, to mess with him, because as you said, later we find out, he doesn't realize it, but he is committed where others are voluntary, so he's at her mercy. So I don't know. As as the movie progresses, your opinion of her changes, but I'm not sure if she ever really changed
0: yeah that's I think that's something really interesting uh, that you bring up about the way that uh that maybe like she's putting on a little bit of an act of the you know this wholesome uh we never give up on our patients thing mm-hmm. i this only just occurred to me now, so maybe it means nothing but I'm wondering did she say that because she views uh uh mech murphy as like a little bit of a challenge you know what i'm saying like a little bit of a uh again a disruption but a way of sort of testing her limits can Mm -hmm. i can i overcome this x factor of the kind that i've never dealt with before Yeah, i would be so fascinated to think about it from that perspective next time and it makes me i i am kicking myself for not getting to watch at least a little bit of the netflix show because i'm wondering what angle did they go with i know she's a villain or a more of a sympathetic character because if she's mm-hmm. the protagonist i have to imagine that she's a little more sympathetic but only time will tell i guess so so we'll we'll have to uh put a uh, put a button on that one but yeah yeah so um there there's a there's so much to think about this movie when it comes to kind of our allegiances as a viewer. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and one of the things that I realized while I was watching it this time is that maybe we're not meant to take a side, essentially like, like Mm. maybe we're supposed to just sort of view this as a function of civilization you know what i'm saying where there will always be those who try to disrupt the nat uh maybe not the natural order but kind of the established order of things uh health the establishment that's kind of what the counterculture movement was all about there will always be those uh who will try to disrupt that the the question is are they right to do so and will they succeed and how will they succeed and when we see the ultimate conclusion that this movie comes to it goes from kind of a really exciting uh you know push and pull to a really kind of bleak look at the way the world works and complete with just this haunting score that will be stuck in my head at least for the rest of tonight uh <laughs> yeah
1: you were talking about uh- the establishment and um there's a book on screenwriting called i think save the cat and it Mm. categorizes all the stories you could ever tell and i don't remember how many categories and there's like a you know the superhero but it's not just the comic book superheroes it's like it follows a particular path like the structure the bones of each story all fall into these categories and one of them i think it was called institutionalized or in the institution. And it's basically a hmm. story where any story in which you come into this world and realize that that's it, that this is the way things are. It's like, um, you know, forget it. It's Chinatown. You know, there's nothing you can do. This is how it is. So sure. I think One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest falls into that category of like, he comes in and he's sort of like the man out. He's different from the establishment, but he can't beat the establishment. And that's why you can yeah. fully take sides. Cause this is a thing that's going to be this way, or at least at the time being, it was this cruel and this awful. And um, you're going to go through it. And what's going to happen to you is going to happen to you. You know, there's no, there's no winners really in this one.
0: I, I haven't read the, uh, the book you're talking about. I've heard that seven is the number uh, I, okay. of, of stories that there are. That's the one I've heard most often, you know, give or take a few. But yeah, they're only, according to certain uh, texts and stuff and sources, there are yeah. only like a finite number of uh, stories that can sort of be yeah. fleshed out and made their own. So it's an interesting way to think about it. Um, yeah. And yeah, I definitely do think that uh, that you're right in saying that there are no winners with perhaps one exception. And this is where we get to yes. <laughs> my favorite character in the movie, uh, uh, Chief, Will Sampson himself, uh, who at the beginning of the movie we're led to believe is deaf and therefore uh, d- just does not feel the need to speak. And, uh, and uh, there's this kind of this running gag where they're on a basketball court uh and uh, jack nicholson is thinking like hey we've got this other guy this really uh you know really crazy tall guy who would be just invaluable on the basketball court here at this mental ward and is trying to convince chief to say hey just take the ball and put it in the basket and this happens two or three times and then when 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 chief starts to grasp the concept of the game and just starts dominating at it so hilariously i'll never forget the joy i felt the first time watching this movie like i couldn't tell you what it was but there was something about just the catharsis that i felt in this moment that like maybe that just something was paying off that had built up all that time but it starts to cement this character as kind of the one who will ultimately uh, come out victorious at the end yeah. and I think it's part of the reason why uh, although certainly not the most outspoken character literally uh, he kind of emerges as maybe the best and most important character in the movie
1: I'll tell you what it is the the best part of that scene is Chief's walk like he starts. Yes because at first so at first at first it's like he's just trying to get him to put his hands up so cuz he he could he almost can touch the basket like he's like so tall that he's right there yeah. so he's he's like yeah you just have to put your hands up and just throw the ball there and so the moment he does that is fantastic but when he does his little strut to the other side <laughs> to just hold the net so no one can get the ball in It was just like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. He was just so proud of himself. (laughs) It was a great moment. And it's also great when you see comedy that doesn't need words. It's just like all physical comedy. He was fantastic.
0: Yeah, again, that walk is this (laughs) victory walk. And it's not the the first one that I'll have in this movie. So uh, not to give away too much. But yeah, I think it's part of the reason... uh, why that is kind of the standout character beyond a lot of the leads. And I think it is worth mentioning, we we listed off the cast list earlier, but this movie is so impressive in the way that each character feels distinct. Yes. Each actor brings something to their role to the point where by the end of it, you will know their mm-hmm. names. And I'm terrible with names, so that's saying something.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really important in this movie because I think when it comes to asylums or uh, any mental wards or anything, there's this huge sort of cop-out of like, oh yeah, they're crazy, they're going to do crazy things and it doesn't matter, like just make them be as wacky as possible. And that's not the case here. And maybe it's the, what do you call it? The scenes in group therapy. It's such a great moment for each of them, a distinct voice. Even if they're just like Uh offhand comments or just to like bother the other person you get to know them very well. You get what they sound like, who they are, what they think, if they're abrasive, if they're insecure. I think they did a great job with with each character without having to spend a crazy amount of time with each of them. You're right, you know exactly every character in that scene.
0: Just a few things I want to, because I forgot to do this earlier, but just to sort of establish uh, a little bit about how this movie came about. It's nothing too notable or anything, but I think it is interesting uh, the way that in 1971, I think, or maybe even earlier, maybe even in the 60s, uh, Kirk Douglas was actually uh, playing the lead character in the stage version of this, the Broadway version of One Pool of the Cuckoo's Nest. And eventually... uh, Obtained the rights somehow, wanted to make a movie, sold them to his son, Michael Douglas, who ended up producing the movie. And so when you see Michael Douglas in the credits, yeah, it's that Michael Douglas.
1: <laughs> I was wondering that. I saw that and I was like, is it the Michael Douglas? Like, I'm not sure. Yeah, I remember seeing that.
0: Yeah, so a lot of fun stuff. Um, another I found out uh, th- this is kind of just little imdb trivia bits but i found out a couple of other actresses who were lined up or not lined up but considered for nurse ratchet uh angela lansbury was one of them which would have been so weird yeah uh let's see and uh and uh bancroft from the graduate and the elephant man i can totally see that i uh i think um and Bancroft would have been a really great nurse ratchet and would have been would have really been great at communicating sort of that warmth and coldness at the same time. You know what I'm saying? Mm,
1: yeah, I understand.
0: So. Uh, so, yeah, um, I think uh, I think we've, we've talked a lot about the movie. We sort of we have sort of played a little coy about it. So uh, we talked about a lot of fun stuff. I was wondering if were there any uh, other points that you wanted to make about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest?
1: Um, well, there's a lot to, you could talk about this movie for, for hours really, but you were mentioning how Chief is your favorite character and something that I noticed this time around that I hadn't really noticed the first time I saw the movie. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about Chief's size, like the first time that Max sees him. And of course he makes note of how tall he is. He's a very tall, large man. And that sort of works as a running gag. But there's also something kind of deeper to his character about that. And I don't know if it's like a symbolism they were trying I to go so, for. Yeah. But um, at one point, the character, you find out he's not deaf and he's been pretending. And Mac decides that he they should both get out of this place together and head to Canada. But Chief says something along the lines where he can't go because he's not as big as Mac, which Mac kind of takes it as a joke. But I think there's something to be said about how small uh, these institutions Hmm. can make you feel. Cause as, as far as I know, there's a moment where they say who's voluntary and who's committed. And I don't think they say what chief's story is or if he's committed, I don't think he is, but yeah. And so I think it's a way Hmm. of showing you how this place can make you feel like you're just not good enough to be on the outside or you're not ready or you know like they have this control over you like nurse ratchet has this control over them on on what they're doing and who they should be and i thought that was really interesting because later on it's like chief is ready and he tells him i feel big now as big as a mountain i'm ready to leave so i thought that was a really interesting way of developing a character without having to go into too much detail on what had happened to them or why they ended up there
0: wow you know what's weird is that i've i I had a completely different interpretation of that line. But really hearing, uh, what you just articulated now, I think you might be right. But I think maybe it might be a combination of both of ours. The way that I read it with that specifically that first time was that uh, Chief was saying uh, he's not as big as McMurphy, not physically necessarily, but I think personality oh, yeah. wise. Mm-hmm. I think that what he's trying to say in that first time is that I don't. Feel the need to escape, you know. Like I don't like I'm fine here, uh, and that I don't I don't feel like I would be better served elsewhere. Something along those lines. But I think I think yeah, that uh, I like your explanation a lot better actually. So uh, because it definitely makes sense.
1: I think there's there's truth in both of them because I hadn't thought about it the way you mentioned it. And yes, Mac has like this huge boisterous personality, and he could like take on anything. So I think it kind of like it's somewhere in the middle, probably. Yeah. That's right. To do.
0: Um, yeah, totally. I, I, I totally see that. So, wow. We're, we're really bringing it with the, yeah. uh, with the, uh, uh, divulging interpretations <laughs> of things today. So I was, I was delighted to have this conversation. So I think unless, uh, unless, uh, you had anything else that you wanted to bring up, I think we can close out the, uh, the show.
1: Yeah. Sounds good.
0: Cool. So, uh, So, yeah, thank you for uh, listening, as always, to Extra Milestone. Maria, thank you for joining me on the show. Uh, I had a wonderful time. I hope that we can do it again sometime.
1: I would love to, yeah, anytime.
0: Cool. So why don't you let the listeners know where can they find you on the World Wide Web, if they so desire?
1: Well, it's been quite a while, but if you would like to see the kind of content that I made about a year ago, I have a channel on YouTube called CineClub Channel, or CineClub. Wow, I don't even remember my own channel. No, it's CineClub on YouTube, but you can find my handle on Twitter is CineClub Channel. So that's um, where Sam was talking about that I, I made videos about movies and like bucket list movies. So, you know, I, I've been having sort of like the need to do something. It's like, oh, yeah, I really should do something. Um, and I also think maybe because this year has slowed down in terms of movies coming out, I'm like, I can think more and I can think of other movies that I would like to talk about. So, yeah, maybe something will come up soon. Who knows? I think There's some pretty good videos there about movie reviews and analyzing movies and you know, all the stuff we love to talk about. So if you enjoy listening to people talk about movies, then yeah, you can find me there.
0: Very nice. Uh, yeah, I'm also uh, on Twitter and on TikTok at Nolan Sam. Can't believe I'm saying that, but here we are. And, uh, and you can find me hosting this show. So
1: popular.
0: Listen, I'm at least as flabbergasted <laughs> as you are, if not more so. But that is what happened. Uh, and, uh, and I host this show every single week and others on occasion. So uh, I'm never more than a week away on this very podcast feed. And so without any further, uh, uh, any further delay, I believe that we will sign off from a, uh, a, a mental institution where I may or may not belong. I'm Sam Noland.
1: From an existential crisis, I am Maria Garcia.
0: And we'll see you on the next Extra Milestone.